Welcome everyone. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to grab coffee with your favorite violence against women researcher? Curious about what they're up to and what they think? Then sit down, grab your coffee, and stay tuned as we bring you Coffee Chats with Researchers. Hello everyone. Thanks for joining us for some coffee and some chatting. I'm Katie Butner from the Center on Violence Against Women and Children, and for today's coffee chat, we're talking with Dr. Judy Postmas, Associate Dean at the Rutgers School of Social Work, and visiting scholar Jennifer Glinsky, a PhD candidate from the University of Glasgow. Today's topic is economic abuse, and Judy and Jen are the perfect pair to get us talking about this important issue. So, Jen, I know that you're here um, at the Center on Violence Against Women and Children and at the Rutgers School of Social Work as a visiting scholar, and I know we're very happy to have you, but can you talk a little bit about that, how that partnership came to be? Like, how did you both become familiar with each other? Yeah, so we started this now three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. Um, So at the moment, there's very little research being done on financial abuse in the UK. Uh, I think I'm one of the only people doing it in Scotland. We've got a few researchers in England that are doing it in a charity that focuses specifically on it. Um, So you become aware of who's in the field quite quickly. Uh, And Judy's all over the field. (laughs) So my literature review, all my research points back to Judy's work. Um, And then luckily, we do have a mutual contact, um, Nicola Sharp-Jeffs, who's based in London. And I asked Nicola, is there any chance you can give me an introduction to Judy? And she did that. So we touched base three years ago now via email. And I just said, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Uh, Big fan of your work, you know, the usual stuff. And then said, yeah, is there any way I can come over and join you at Rutgers? I feel like that's a pretty cool story because I think so many people in your position think like, I can't do that. You know, like I can't just find a way to work with this person. Um, And yet you did it and you sort of like make the example that it is possible to have that happen. So yeah, I guess, Judy, from your standpoint as kind of the senior researcher, how do you feel or what would your advice be about like doing that as a young academic? and like choosing to reach out in that way? I mean, I think having the big lead helped in the sense of not saying I want to come next week or next month or something (laughs) would not have been helpful. Um, I think that being really clear with what it is you want to do, what you want to accomplish and how often you're going to need to to work with me or talk with me or I think that that would, for students who are individuals who want to work with senior scholars, I think just being clear with what you want to get out of the relationship and what you hope to gain and what the scholar might get from it. I mean, I'm certainly um, have asked a lot of questions about how it's being, how economic and financial abuse is being recognized and, and addressed in Scotland. Um, and so I'm learning more about others who are doing this work. And I just, I'm thrilled that because there are so few people doing this work um, that it does seem to be more and more researchers in other countries are taking this up. And so I'm thrilled that, Another, yet another country is doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I think that it's just, it's ask. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is they say no. So, or they might say yes. Or they might say yes, then you end up here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, like you mentioned, Jen, Judy is kind of the expert when you're coming to look for economic abuse in the field of like academic literature and whatnot. So Judy, can you talk a little bit about what we mean? So in, um, in the field about economic abuse and financial abuse, and when we use those terms, kind of what are we talking about? Right. So financial abuse, and I use the terms interchangeably between economic abuse and financial abuse. 
Um, it's a it's a form of intimate partner violence, and it's um, an area that has been recognized by the field of domestic violence for decades. I mean, it is not a new concept, except it hadn't been studied. Um, a lot of people just assumed it was part of psychological abuse, and it wasn't until a study I did early on in 2008 where we started teasing out um, and looking at economic abuse as its own construct. Um, I then used Adrian Adams from Michigan State. Her She created a, the first scale of economic abuse. It was a rather long scale of 28 questions. Um, uh, we used it in a study. I then ran some analyses on that scale and got it down to 12 questions with three different constructs. So basically, economic abuse includes um, economic or financial exploitation, where an abuser, through power and control, um, uh, exploits the financial standing of the partner. So it might be that takes out loans in her names and destroys her credit or doesn't pay bills on time or or does something that exploits her financial ability to, to make ends meet and be self-sufficient. Another form of economic abuse is financial control or economic control where the abuser will control how the money is being spent and makes all the decisions. There's no joint discussion around how money should be spent or purchases to be bought. Um, controls, controls by having... Um, her account for every penny that's spent and turning in receipts. And then the last form of economic um, abuse is called um, sabotaging of work or work sabotage, where if she is working or trying to get work that he sabotages her efforts, like maybe he might show, show, keep showing up unexpectedly at the office and gets her in trouble, makes tons of phone calls and texts again to get her into trouble at work, or maybe turns off the alarm or um, destroys her work clothes or disrupts her transportation or childcare all with the effort of getting her fired or at least embarrassed. Um, and again, as, as another way to control, there's probably more research in that area of economic abuse. Um, but what's been interesting is, is really having a conversation around, is it really a distinct construct from uh, psychological or emotional abuse? Um, and from our early analyses on the different scales and variables, we have found that yes, it is different from physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. And so, Jen, what led you here? Like, what got you interested in doing this type of work and being interested in this as an area of violence against women? So I've always worked and researched around violence against women. It used to be reproductive health and seeing how things were working against women there. And I've always been quite interested in kind of like the micro level of like like the interpersonal violence, but then also kind of like miso and macro level. So policy and kind of, for lack of the better word, like the system, how it actually works against women. Um, something in terms of financial abuse, it's something that kept coming up among family and friends. Um, and it was something that I wasn't very familiar with, even with, you know, the research that I was doing, it hadn't really come up. Like we know women are financially disadvantaged in society compared to equally positioned men. Um, that if you do go through domestic abuse, you're more likely to have less resources afterwards, but no one was really looking at it or considering it a problem. So it's a mix of in terms of personal experience and seeing family and friends go through this and no one really acknowledging it or helping them. Um, that got me really interested. And then that just happened chance. There was a, a studentship that came up at the University of Glasgow that was looking at women's financial positions throughout, you know, when they experience domestic abuse to the process of leaving and what kind of support they're given around that. So I was able to take that studentship and then shift the focus actually when financial abuse is a very specific form of domestic abuse. Like Judy mentioned, it goes hand in hand with other forms of abuse, but it is in and of itself a form that is perpetrated for financial purposes and to kind of control her as well. 
Um, so yeah, it's a mix of everything, I think, personal and just being in the right place at the right time with the studentship. And so one thing I happen to know about you and so can bring up in this conversation is that you did a internship with the Royal Bank of Scotland. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and sort of how it interacts with this work that you're doing? Yeah. So again, right place, um, right time. It kind of came up as a bit of a joke in one of my supervisions to say, well, why don't we send you to the bank? Um, and the first reaction was like, do we have anyone in a bank? Do we know someone that we could connect through? Because same as contacting Judy, you know, just going up to the bank and saying, I would like to do a piece of research for you. Uh, there's a fat chance. They're not just going to let you do that. Let you walk through the door. Um, so again, started reaching out to people. Um, there was a mutual contact between a supervisor and, and a woman who worked in the bank. And lucky for me, the woman that worked in the bank just said, absolutely. How can we do this? And at the time that I came in um, to do my internship, it wasn't being talked about. It just was not a thing within the bank. There was no recognition of it. Uh, A little bit of hostility just in terms of, well, what are you really here to do? Um, And what it ended up being is a three-month internship. And I worked quite closely with the supervisor that I then had within the Royal Bank of Scotland. But I managed to do an internal survey that that captured what their own staff kind of went through. And if they recognize the forms and if they thought that, you know, their policies and practices as a bank actually responded to this form of abuse. Um, So that was quite powerful because it wasn't just let's do something for your customers or this is something you need to do. But it actually showed that their staff themselves were experiencing it and that something needed to happen. Um, And then I also spoke to 10 different departments within the Royal Bank of Scotland to see what's going on. Do they have vulnerable customer protection? How are these people being you know, sorted as vulnerable and what happens when you flag them as vulnerable? What are the policies and practices that the bank has? Um, And then I also interviewed survivors um, that are banking, you know, banking with different banks across the UK to see what their experiences were. Again, looking at those three categories of control, exploitation and sabotage, what they were experiencing and how they felt the banks responded to it. You know, did they disclose to the bank at all? If they did disclose, what did the bank do? Did something special in terms of practices kick in for them where the bank said, let's help you do this? Or was it more, this really isn't so much our problem? Um, And the answers were really, they were mixed. I mean, some customers had really good experiences and they felt like they were being listened to, but then there were more practical problems around you know, having so much debt left from this relationship, that's not your debt. And you had no knowledge it was adding up or you had no knowledge of the debt at all. And then telling the bank and the bank also kind of going, well, it's in your name. So we're not really entirely sure how to help you here. And the outcome of the the internship was actually really good. You know, we're, we're in academia. It usually takes a little while to see these things take hold. But I did that within three months and I produced a report. And then three months after I left, Uh, The bank notified me that they had hired a financial abuse specialist to work for them, that the report had gone up to the highest level of like CEO had read it and that they were looking to revise their policies and practices to make sure that they anyone who's customer facing and that their practices are in line of actually supporting survivors through this. So it's a good outcome and a pretty quick outcome as well. I feel like uh, you can't see our faces, but Judy yeah. and I are like, what yeah. is happening? <laughs> um, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, my question would be, Judy, for you as the person who's sort of the U.S. context has been your focus, hearing that, like, what does that make you think about? Because for me, I hear like, wow, that's incredible, like that something like that has been able to happen so quickly um, and in a way that made such a direct impact. And obviously, I think there's a huge conversation around the context of what it means to be in the UK versus the United States, both with like general population size, just the way that our banking system works, like all of that is really different. But 
the idea, at least from my understanding, of working with um, banks around financial abuse is just not in non-existent in the in the United States context. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that and hearing that this is something that has happened. Oh, you know, it's very exciting work that Jen has done um, in Scotland and uh, and of course this. She also informed me that this work was also being done in Australia, mm-hmm. of which I've had connections with some researchers down there as well. Um, so super exciting. And so we had a meeting, not only with herself and me talking about this clearly, but we also talked to some development people here at Rutgers University to try to see if we could incur- figure out how to pitch this to uh, a bank or two or three here in the U.S. to see if any of them would be interested in having conversations and perhaps seeing if we could put an intern and do a similar, almost replicate the entire experience here with with a student who might be able to, who would be interested in doing this. Um, so I think that there's some, um, we're still working on having how best to pitch the idea to a bank here. Um, and uh, it's not left my radar screen and certainly not um, our development officer from the school. Um, hopefully we'll make some connections and see what we can do here in the U.S. Because you're right, nothing like this has ever happened. Yeah, I mean, the ability to connect a sort of social enterprise with this what especially in the US we consider this kind of massive profit very capitalist space would be just unheard of like I, I can't think of a better word in that way that it's like the ability to to be in a space where we were having that kind of conversation in such a formal way or in a formal institution like that would be pretty much a game changer mm-hmm. um, because when we think about economic abuse interventions and stuff now, it's it's so much outside of those institutions. It's very much in the home. How do we work with you as an individual? Um, and, you know, I would absolutely argue that that's part of the problem is our interventions are so often focused on the person who's the victim mm-hmm. and how do we work with them to change the outcome rather than how do we try to work with the systems and the institutions that are directly relating right. to this work. Well, again, I think most of the attention in the field has been in when they address systems that they're often addressing criminal justice systems, police, prosecution, they're, they're addressing maybe child welfare systems or welfare systems. But because financial abuse hasn't been studied much here, they haven't thought about the financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's some um, ideas on what, what Jen learned in Scotland around what, how banks could actually help um, and provide some support. Because again, what we know from women who experience financial abuse, that the impacts can be long-term, like you know, 10, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. especially if your credit's been destroyed. And we know that nowadays you need to have good credit to get a job, to get housing, to get almost anything. And then everyone's checking those credit scores. Well, if somebody else destroyed it and you're out of luck, it's really hard to dig yourself out of that hole. And so I think that if banks are willing to be more understanding, to be able to flag, to be able to provide some um, support, I think we're, uh, to the to the victim. But I also think some of the policies are also different in how we address intimate partner violence or domestic violence here in this country. In the UK, they've shifted to a coercive control mm-hmm. um, policy where we where they focus not just on physical violence, but all the other forms of violence. Whereas here in this country, we're still zeroed in on physical abuse only as a way to bring it to the courts and get mm-hmm. um, criminal justice interventions. And so I think that our country needs to think about that model and think about how financial abuse can really devastate and how we need to put some protections in for victims. We need to have the systems involved. Um, And I think we could really make a difference to help, especially survivors' lives, financially be better. 
and survive in a, in a self-sufficient way. Yeah. yeah. And I think Judy's right. I mean, in terms of Scotland, they did bring in legislation last year that came into force, which now criminalizes coercive and controlling behavior. So if you can demonstrate that there was a pattern of coercion and control and be that physical, mental, psychological, financial, you know, the lot, um, you can now criminalize that. So I think it also brings into question different organizations, different, you know, outlets where women have come in contact where they might be potentially holding a piece of evidence to now evidence this pattern and banks really fall within that. So I think, again, it was, you know, I got quite lucky with the timing because that legislation came in, but also because now the banks need to look and think, could we be called to witness? Like, could we be called to go through her records to indicate that actually, look, before she entered this relationship, all of her payments were in time. There was no debt. Her credit rating was fantastic. And now she's come out the other end or what she says has happened. And now look at what's happening. You know, there's inconsistent payments. There's different patterns. And the reality of the matter is that banks have all this information about us. I mean, when they pull up your account screen, it's all there. You can't go anywhere or do anything without them knowing your, what your payment pattern is. So they actually have the tools already to see these patterns and to go, something's going on here. Maybe you don't want to intervene. I don't know how that works legally in terms of intervention for them, but they can definitely see the patterns happen. And I think probably for me, at least have a social responsibility to step in because they do it with other vulnerable people. Part of, you know, working with Judy and, and talking to different people about the financial abuse and banking, you know, I've been doing research and just seeing they have elder abuse, they have, you know, controls and mechanisms and that. So why do they care about one population that's quite vulnerable to abuse, but not another population that's not quite vulnerable. Because the argument would be the same. They're not making any financial gains off of that, but they have put things in place to say, do you think, you know, your father or your mother, your elderly mother is being financially abused? So they recognize that it happens, but they haven't taken that leap to go to domestic violence yet. And so for people who might be listening, who work directly with clients and are interested or want to understand better how this can impact their day-to-day -day work, what would you say, based on the research, is important for people working with clients to kind of pay attention to? Maybe like a few um, just elements that you would say are kind of key to, to probe further if that comes up or something that you've learned from your work. I mean, I think the first step would be to ask. To, to make yourself familiar with an understanding economic abuse, the scale of economic abuse 12 is literally 12 questions and it covers all three areas. There's a couple of questions per area. Um, you could use a tool, you could just be familiar with the various tactics and ask questions. But the one thing I've learned when, we, when I started studying this topic is that a lot of the survivors who were already connected to domestic violence organizations had never been asked these questions. They were asked about the physical abuse, they were asked about the psychological maybe, maybe asked about the sexual, but definitely not asked about financial abuse. And so I think that there has to be a greater awareness and the importance of asking this as a form of abuse. Um, and I think, again, using the scale, it's being translated into multiple languages. Um, so it could be used in almost any setting um, to just ask the question and then be prepared to what do we do about this, mm -hmm. whether it's using a financial literacy curriculum to do some building of knowledge that Allstate Foundation, which was the original funder of a lot of the studies that I did, um, that they still have a curriculum that they still put out from the purplepurse.org, I believe, um, that they have this curriculum available for anybody who's interested in learning more about how to become more financially literate. Um, there's other economic, uh, economic empowerment programs, such as um, matched savings accounts or individual development accounts. Um, there are some programs that are doing uh, preparing for jobs and housing 
So there's just there's a number of ways for practitioners that they can go in any any number of ways. Some of it is very comfortable. They're used to doing that. They're used to working with survivors around housing and jobs, but they but to get to more of the understanding of how to manage money, how to manage a budget, how to save, how to not live paycheck to paycheck, but to really think about saving um, and money in a different way that you feel more empowered to be in control of something that you've had absolutely no control over before. I think is really the the biggest thing to do. Yeah, I think ask, recognize, and believe would probably be how I would say people should approach it. Because in my experience with the research that I've done, um, interviewing survivors across Scotland, a lot of them were very open about the financial abuse because they're not labeling it as abuse. They don't recognize it as such. So if they were asked questions, much more so than with other forms of abuse, like psychological or especially physical or sexual they're much more likely to give you the information. So if you ask and you can recognize, then that helps you put together that pattern because they might very freely tell you about what's been going on in the relationship. And you can even go ding, 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 ding. Or even if you're a financial advisor and someone comes in and, well, this is what's going on. I'm trying to manage the debt, but he keeps adding it up. And, you know, I'm not really wanting to take it on. Can I get another loan to cover this? Can I... I mean, those are all the red flags. So if you know how to recognize it, the asking, recognizing, and then just believing her is, I think, a big part of it as well. And I know that some of the strategies that they were starting to use out in Australia in terms of their banks and with other services, just believe her, and then you can work from there. Um, Because more often than not, as I realized with the internship and the banking, all the banking staff said, like, we know our customers don't want to default. We know people don't want bad credit. They'll do anything they can to work around that but they're not recognizing it as something that's being done onto them. They just see it as an end result. So yeah, I'd agree. I think at this point, the awareness raising is huge, as well as just asking people those questions and seeing what they come back with, recognizing it, and then believe and let's move forward with any of the responses that might be available to them or reaching out to to places that have the expertise to say, I think this is going on. What can we do? How do we respond? I was going to say, I also think the practitioners should become not only aware of financial or economic abuse, but also be aware of their own financial management skills and their own financial literacy. I think that um, in this country, we've taken greater um, attention towards um, providing that kind of education training for our young adults. But those of us that are not young anymore, (laughs) that this training may or may not ever have been available. And so then you're relying on who teaches you and where do you learn this information. And I think those working in the field are especially prone to not necessarily understanding this themselves. And so making sure that you've, you have that learning and understanding. And one of the first steps you can do even for yourself and with the survivor is to check their credit score is to go look and see because that will give you a whole bunch of information of a credit card's been opened in your name without you knowing about it what the score is what kind of damages that the abuser might have done um, and once you become familiar with your own credit score and how it's how to read it um, you can then even help a survivor and again point to that as this is yet another way that he was controlling you and it needs to go in addition to that it needs to go beyond budgeting i think yes. what a lot of survivors have explained is because they've been financially controlled They know how to make do with very little for a very long time. So some survivors will say, if you give me $5, I'll make that work. So if you're just looking at, well, or if you're approaching it with a lack of understanding, thinking she's just really bad at budgeting, which a lot of, I think, is a mentality we see quite a bit. You're just really bad with money. So if that's what you've been told throughout that relationship, and then you try to exit it or you have exited it and you're looking for support. And again, people are just suggesting that actually you're just really bad with money. And that's why your credit score is so bad. That's something we need to move beyond as well, because these women know how to budget. And so thinking about next steps, what do you see as a gap um, that you'd love to see research 
take a look at or fill? Like, what would be your next step? I know. Asking the tough questions for these coffee chats. Well, I mean, I think think from in the U.S., I think really a hard look at our policy around what is domestic violence and to start looking at what the U.K. is doing about coercive control and really examining our policies and to start really looking at financial abuse. Because if you're in a married relationship, the government views you as one which means you share all the debt that's incurred, you share all the problems that's incurred, and you can't pursue in a criminal court your spouse because of any financial abuse that's happened. So I think the first thing is to bring greater awareness and shifting of our policy so that there could be some liability put in place and, and, and or minimally that survivors are not being held responsible for any debt that's uh, incurred or damage to credit that's happened because of somebody else's behavior. Um, that's a that's a big ask for this country. Um, and I think that, you know, whether we start at the national level or the state level, um, I think doing some of the work that Jen has done with banks, I think could also be bring greater awareness for the banks to partner with domestic bonds organizations to perhaps even make this legislation happen. That's a stretch. But to me, that's that's the big thing. I think the Allstate Foundation has been doing a really good job of providing funding for agencies to address this matter. And so I think that they've been doing this, um, but I still don't think it's gone much out of the organizations and into the general under- population's understanding. Um, I still think they think domestic violence is all about physical violence. Um, and so I think some huge awareness around different forms of abuse, including financial abuse, needs to be out there for the American public. No, and I don't think we're actually, I mean, it's different in the UK and it's different in Scotland than it is here. And like we already mentioned, Scotland does have this groundbreaking legislation now. And we've got wonderful feminist organizations and women's charities that will work on making sure it's implemented properly. Um, But I think there's still a real lack of awareness of the different forms that exist. And because we have this legislation now in Scotland, it is so important that judges know, that solicitors know, that anyone that you come in contact with, if you're thinking about bringing your case forward, knows about this form of abuse. And I don't think we're quite there yet. So we have groundbreaking legislation. It is going to make a huge difference. But if you don't know what you're looking for, um, that makes a big difference. So I think a lot of different training needs to occur with different people that come in contact with survivors. Now, whether legislative policy or otherwise, um, the awareness just needs to be there. And I think in terms of research, like I said, I think there's a handful of us. It would be nice where can we go in terms of research taking this forward? You know, do we all need to meet and see where everyone's at? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's only a few of us that we should be able to do it, you think, with everyone's schedules, because there are great things happening. I know Nicholas Sharpchefs, who runs um, Surviving Economic Abuse, is doing this work with the banks, and she's really rolling it out, making sure that they all have training. So whatever bank wants to sign up and receive this training and change the policies and practices, she's right there. So there's big things happening with that. There's big things happening in Scotland with the legislation. Again, there's big things happening in Australia, but we haven't managed to come all together yet to see where do you stand. You know, we know the scale checks out. We know the scale works and we all we all use it. But um, what are some of the different findings across different countries? And right. what are we even seeing culturally? Because right. that's something we've not addressed. This has been mainly Western countries that have addressed it right. and are looking into it where we're going to hit probably cultural barriers in terms of, well, this is just how that works in a family. Um, so us coming along and saying, no, but this is financial abuse. I think we've got a lot of questions to tackle there. So I think more in terms of, yeah, different cultural issues and research mm-hmm. and even with the LGBTQI community mm-hmm. as well, um, it would be good to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Um, so I think as a closing, Jen, I'd love to hear just like how has this been for you, like coming here, spending these few weeks um, at the center and at Rutgers. It's been incredible. I know people have now started rolling their eyes at it, but no, it's been it's been really great. I mean, we're encouraged through the PhD program to do an overseas institutional visit. That's what we call it. I don't get to be a visiting scholar back in Scotland. I'm just a visiting person. Um, so in terms of just like the access, the information that I've gained, meeting people in the center, even just having access to Judy. I mean, it's been incredible sitting down going, this is what I'm doing with my work. Uh, what am I missing? What do you think? Or even just looking at, you know, definitions. Why do you use this one time? Why do you use this another time? You know, to, to really look at it and to actually get answers. <laughs> it's like, nope, I've done this. I've worked this through. This is what it looks like. This is how you can take it forward. Um, and everyone has just been so incredible and so helpful. And whatever I've needed, people have just said, okay, let's get this set up for you. Um, and even the opportunities within the center, you know, to do this or to do the Twitter Mondays, the hashtag Money Mondays, they've all been incredible opportunities. And I think it really hopefully has kickstarted a conversation of what we can do cross-nationally and how we can move forward together. Well, thank you both for being here, for giving us your time and sharing your expertise. Um, and yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you did a great Thanks for listening to my chat with Dr. Judy Postmas and Jennifer Glinsky. If you'd like to listen to other coffee chats, you can find them on our website, vawconsortium.rutgers.edu. Again, that's vawconsortium.rutgers.edu. We'd always love to hear from you, so give us a holler at vossi at ssw.rutgers.edu. We'll see you back here for our next coffee chat with researchers.